Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week... I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. You will most likely have heard the case I'm going to discuss this week. It's very famous, and not just for the crime itself, but for how witnesses played or didn't play a key role. It's the murder of Kitty Genovese. On March 13th of 1964, Kitty was attacked in a parking lot shortly after arriving home from work late that night. She screamed loudly as she was stabbed multiple times by her assailant. Many neighbors heard her cries for help. And according to an article published in the New York Times shortly after her death, These neighbors did nothing. In fact, they ignored her screams and cries for help. This has since been dubbed the bystander effect or the Genovese effect. The story showed the world that New York is a hard place, full of people who don't want to get involved. But was this article accurate? Did over 38 people ignore the blood-curdling screams from a dying woman? This week, I'll look at the case of Kitty Genovese. I'm going to first look at the case, then the article that was written, and then I'm going to go into some of the facts that have come to light many years after the attack. First, I want to just talk about Kitty Genovese herself. So many of us know the basic story of what happened to her, but we don't know who she was. And the more I learned about her while doing my research 
the more I came to really love and respect her. Catherine Susan Genovese was born on July 7, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York to Vincent and Rachel Genovese. Her mother was a homemaker, and her father ran the Bay Ridge Coat and Apron Supply Company. Kitty was the first of their five children. Later on came Vincent, Susan, William, and Francis. They all lived in a four-family row house, which was on St. John's Place near Brooklyn's Prospect Park. And the neighborhood then was quite different from how it is now. Today you'll find it full of upscale brownstones, but back then it was just a lower-class neighborhood. It was populated mainly by Italians and Irish. Kitty went to the all-girls Prospect Heights High School, and she was just a tiny slight of a thing, standing around five foot one. She had this short, kind of grown-out pixie cut, and her large, dark eyes were framed by these gorgeous, full eyebrows. Her friends described her as the one that would make you laugh, a total cut-up. She was the one that liked to mimic the French teacher in class. Kitty was funny, witty, and she charmed everyone. And it was actually a big deal to be in her clique of friends. Her circle liked to have fun, including cutting class or playing hooky as they called it. In 1950, there was a big increase in crime in many of the New York neighborhoods. And that was the year her mother witnessed a murderer on the street. There was a shooting so close that she almost walked directly into the gunfire. So after seeing that, the family decided it was time to move somewhere safer. They went to New Canaan, Connecticut, which is 50 miles north of New York. But Kitty refused to leave. She said New York was her home, and she was just coming into her own as a young woman. So she worked as a secretary to earn enough money for her own apartment. At night, she tended bar for extra cash. And then on the weekends, she would go visit her family in New Canaan. Out of all of her brothers and sisters, she was closest to her younger brother, Bill. He was six at the time, and he vividly remembers their long talks and rides in her red Fiat. In 1963, she met Marianne Zalonko. Originally from New Hampshire, Marianne moved to Greenwich Village. At that time, the village was a place for freethinkers, radicals, and the square pegs that didn't fit into the round holes of society. Marianne found it to be a place of like-minded people, girls like me, girls who liked me. See, Marianne was gay, and in 1963, that was not accepted. At that time, it was actually illegal to be homosexual. So being gay was something that you kept a secret. And even though it wasn't socially accepted, there were still places you could go if you were a lesbian at that time. One such place was an underground club called the Swing Rendezvous. And one night while there, Marianne noticed a very cute, dark-haired girl checking her out. She was used to getting a lot of attention with her blonde movie star looks. The cute girl came over and said, Don't I know you from somewhere? But Marianne was positive she'd never seen this girl before. I don't think so, she replied. Oh, I think I do. I'm Kitty. The two danced and talked all night. But at one point, they lost track of each other without getting each other's full names or phone numbers. And Marianne thought she'd never see this girl again. But that was until one night she came home from work and she found a note on her door that said, I'll call you at 7, the phone across the street. It was referring to the phone booth across the street since the boarding house where she was staying didn't contain a phone. 
They agreed to meet at a bar called The Seven Steps, another club friendly to lesbians. Marianne recalls the exact moment she saw Kitty walk in the door. She said, sometimes you meet a person and you just know. Marianne snuck Kitty up to her boarding house room that night, and they quickly became a couple after the fact. She was 24 and Kitty was 27. And although fooling around in motel rooms was fun, they soon wanted a place together to call home. They settled on a one-bedroom in Kew Gardens on Austin Street. The whole apartment building housed about 14 apartments with storefronts downstairs. There was a bookstore, a pharmacy, a furniture store, a pet grooming place, and a pub nearby. About the only noise in the neighborhood came from the pub at night, with some rowdy arguments spewing forth now and then. The two became friendly with all the neighbors, especially Kitty, who charmed everyone with her vivaciousness. They were happy there in their cozy apartment. Marianne would sit and read poetry while Kitty stuck to her nonfiction, like Betty for Dan. They worked hard to fix the place up, making it a home. Carl Ross, who ran the dog grooming place around the corner, even sold them a poodle that they named Andrew. So while they were lovers, many assumed that they were just roommates. Not very many knew of the true relationship. Marianne worked at a bar called Club Chris, while Kitty worked at Ev's 11th Hour in Hollis. Most of her duties were managerial, like balancing the books and keeping inventory, but she would help tend bar too. She had no qualms about being called a barmaid. Eventually, she hoped to save her tips to open an Italian restaurant. Kitty worked a lot of double shifts since it paid very decently. And most times, she worked at night. The bar stayed open pretty late until about 3 or 4 in the morning. And that's where Kitty was on March 13th of 1964. It had officially been a year since she first met Marianne. The night was very cold when she left the bar and got into her red Fiat around 3 a.m. She pulled into an open space in a lot close to the apartment at Kew Gardens. And it was eerily quiet that night. The majority of the residents were sound asleep. Even the pub down the street was subdued. When Kitty left her car, she had no idea the danger that was lying in wait. That danger was 28-year-old Winston Mosley. Mosley was a married father of two from Queens. When Kitty started walking, Mosley attacked her from behind. Before I go into what happened that night, I want to read you the full article that was written in the New York Times a few days after the attack. This is the article that started an absolute firestorm. It's called 37 Who Saw Murder Didn't Call the Police, Apathy at Stabbing of Queens Woman Shocks Inspector, by Martin Gansberg. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice, the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of the bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick M. Lucen, in charge of the borough's detectives and a veteran of 25 years of homicide investigations, is still shocked. He can give matter-of-fact recitation of many murders. 
but the Kew Gardens slang baffles him. Not because it is a murder, but because the good people failed to call the police. As we have reconstructed the crime, he said, the assailant had three chances to kill this woman during a 35-minute period. He returned twice to complete this job. If we had been called when he first attacked, this woman might not be dead now. This is what the police said happened beginning at 3.20 a.m. in the staid, middle-class, tree-lined Austin Street area. 28-year-old Catherine Genovese, who was called Kitty by almost everyone in the neighborhood, was returning home from her job as a manager of a bar in Hollis. She parked her red Fiat in a lot adjacent to the Long Island Railroad Station. Miss Genovese noticed a man at the far end of the lot. She halted. Then nervously, she headed up Austin Street towards Lefferts Boulevard, where there is a call box to the 102nd Police Precinct in nearby Richmond Hill. She got as far as a streetlight in front of the bookstore before the man grabbed her. She screamed. Lights went on. Windows slid open and voices punctured the early morning stillness. Miss Genevieve screamed, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Please help me. From one of the upper windows, a man called down, Let that girl alone. The assailant looked up at him, shrugged, and walked down Austin Street, toward a white sedan parked a short distance away. Miss Genevieve struggled to her feet. Lights went out. The killer returned to Miss Genevieve's, now trying to make her way around the side of the building to get to her apartment. The assailant stabbed her again. I'm dying, she shrieked. I'm dying. Windows were opened again, and lights went on in many apartments. The assailant got into his car and drove away. Miss Genevieve staggered to her feet. A city bus, Q10, passed. It was 3.35 a.m. The assailant returned. By then, Miss Genovese had crawled to the back of the building, where the freshly painted brown doors to the apartment house held out hope for safety. The killer tried the first door. She wasn't there. At the second door, 8262 Austin Street, he saw her slumped on the floor at the foot of the stairs. He stamped her a third time fatally. It was 3.50 by the time the police received their first call, from a man who was a neighbor of Miss Genovese. In two minutes, they were at the scene. The neighbor, a 70-year-old woman, and another woman were the only persons on the street. Nobody else came forward. The man explained that he had called the police after much deliberation. He had phoned a friend in Nassau County for advice, and then he crossed the roof of the building to the apartment of the elderly woman to get her to make the call. I didn't want to get involved, he sheepishly told the police. It was 4.25 a.m. when the ambulance arrived for the body of Miss Genovese. It drove off. Then, a solemn police detective said, the police came out. So that was the account that set in motion so many things. For one, the impression to the rest of the world that New Yorkers were a very uncaring lot, that they didn't want to get involved. They would let a murder occur in front of them without lifting a finger to help. Six days after Kitty's murder, Winston Mosley was arrested during a house burglary. He was in Queens stealing a television when he was stopped and tackled by a neighbor named Kensworth Clare. The man actually laid on top of him until police could arrive and arrest him. 
Once in custody, Officer Albert Seidman recalled how they noticed he matched the description of the killer of Kitty Genovese, an African-American who had a very small build. Mosley was actually the father of two, with a very good job and a high IQ, well above 135. So it was very surprising to think of him as a suspect. But as soon as police started talking to him, their notions of a wrong suspect melted away. His demeanor was reportedly like ice. Mosley began a confession that was almost conversational. He admitted to not only killing Genovese, but murdering another woman just two weeks earlier. He was waiting outside the home of 24-year-old Anna Mae Johnson as she arrived home late at night. And when she emerged from her car, Mosley shot her four times in the stomach with a rifle. He then rolled her into her home, where her family was sleeping upstairs and then proceeded to rape her. He wound up a newspaper, stuffed it between her legs, and he set it on fire. At first, police didn't believe that he really killed Anna Mae Johnson because they thought she was killed with an ice pick. They naturally assumed that he might be lying about killing Kitty, too. But when they exhumed Johnson's body, they found that she had indeed been killed by a rifle. Those small-caliber bullet wounds had been mistaken for punctures of an ice pick. With this vital information, they started to take him very seriously. And then he confessed to another murder, saying he killed a 15-year-old girl the year before. That reference was to Barbara Kralik, who was murdered in Springfield Gardens, which was less than three miles from Kew Gardens. Problem was, there was already someone charged in that crime, Alvin Mitchell, who confessed to the crime. But Mosley knew details that only the killer would have known. Marianne found out about her girlfriend's murder by a knock on the door from police. And she was grilled for six hours about the details of their relationship. And although she later regretted it, she admitted to them that they were lovers. Mary Ann was the one to identify Kitty's body at the morgue. Kitty had 13 stab wounds all over, nine in front and four in back. She was stabbed in the throat, and her hands had many defensive wounds. Her official cause of death was called bilateral pneumothorax, which meant the air escaped from her punctured lungs and filled her chest cavity essentially causing it to suffocate her. The Genovese family found out about the death by police also knocking on their door. Her older brother, Vincent, said the pain never goes away. The youngest, Frank, was sent to live with a neighboring family, the McSweeney's, for weeks. Her parents were extremely distraught. In fact, the family could never bring themselves to even talk about her. It was as if she'd been erased from the family. To speak of her brought up these painful memories of her death. So much so that future generations of the Genovese family only know of Kitty from newspaper articles. Kitty's mother had a stroke about a year later, and her father eventually died from a stroke himself. They never attended the trial of Winston Mosley. And as far as they knew, their daughter died alone in that stairwell. Winston Mosley was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. The sentence was eventually reduced to life in prison. The death of Kitty Genovese is credited as one of the major factors that led to the establishment of the 911 system, and that became an official emergency number in 1968. 
This also led to the law, which made it a crime to not become involved in witnessing a crime. And this is pretty much because of one article. Back in that time, the New York Times was an unshakable source of information. And this was well before the many different news outlets that we have today. Back then, there weren't opinion networks. You didn't tune into one network or newspaper expecting to get a certain point of view, like Fox News or CNN. The papers and the TV were very fact-based and not opinionated. So when the New York Times reported this story, people took it as absolute fact. The story came about when respected editor Abe Rosenthal had dinner with the police commissioner, and he heard of the Genovese murder. He was shocked at how people could have ignored the cries of a dying woman. So he sent reporter Martin Gansberg out to cover the story. After the story was published, it became news across the country, even the world. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And no one ever questioned its accuracy because, well, it was the New York Times. But there was one person who wanted to know more about the events of that day, and that was Kitty's brother, Bill. There's a very fantastic documentary about his search for answers called The Witness, and it's where I got much of my information for this podcast, as well as the book Kitty Genovese by Kevin Cook. Many years after the fact, as a grown man with a family of his own, Bill investigated the death of his sister, and he found out some very interesting information. He first met with the prosecutor on the case, Charles Scholar and they went over the original testimony from witnesses at the trial. Bell thought he would try to track them down to see if this testimony was actually accurate. There was Joseph Fink, the night elevator operator, who heard Kitty's cries but didn't investigate and simply went to sleep. Then there was Carl Ross, the friend who sold Kitty and Marianne their dog. He heard Kitty's cries, but rather than call the police, he called a friend who advised him to not get involved. 
but both of these men had since passed away and could not be questioned. From the first to the last attack, there was a span of 40 minutes, and that was time in which his sister could have been saved. Bill talked to Irene Frost. At the time, she was in bed. She recalls hearing a shriek, and when she looked out the window, she saw a man and a woman by the bookstore. But to her, they simply looked to be talking, so she just went back to bed. When she heard a second cry, it was, Help me, God, I've been stabbed. This time, she saw the woman kneeling down and a man running up the street. According to her, a neighbor, Robert Moser, had yelled for the man to stop, and that's when Mosley ran. But by far the most interesting interview was that of Sophia Farrar. She was very good friends with Kitty. And Sophia didn't actually talk to Bill, but her son did. And he was very young at the time, and he remembers the whole situation very vividly. A blood-curdling scream woke him up. His father looked out the window, but didn't see anything. So they thought it was maybe just nonsense from someone at the bar. But about 20 minutes later, they got a phone call. Kitty was in the hall, bleeding. His mother grabbed her jacket and ran out the door. Sophia tried to open the door, but Kitty's body was blocking it. Sophia had to push her way past, and she grabbed her and held her in her arms. But at first, Kitty fought, not realizing that she was in the arms of a friend. She made an awful gurgling noise from the blood in her throat. The whole foyer was full of blood. You could even smell it. The next day, handprints were covering the wall. They were Sophia's. Bill never knew that his sister had died in the arms of a friend. He thought she had died alone because Sophia was never mentioned in the newspaper article. So naturally, Bill Genevieve started to wonder what else had been omitted from that notorious article. He obtained the original police reports called DD-5s, and they contained the interviews with the witnesses. However, when he got it, much of it was illegible and most of the names were redacted. But he recalled an in-depth story that had been aired on 2020 in the late 70s about his sister's murder. So he contacted R.M. Borjan, the producer of the story, and Aram had those redacted names. There were 38 entries, hence the 38 witnesses so famously mentioned. And he found some very interesting inaccuracies. Lynn Tillotson lived with her mother on the second floor in apartment 214, and she was about 19 or 20 at the time. She recalls being woken out of bed by a scream, but she didn't see anything when she went to the window. But in the police reports, her mother is reported as saying she heard... George, he's done it to me twice. But she didn't say any such thing to the police. Her mother was never even spoken to. The article in the New York Times talked about how no one called police. But in fact, Hattie Grunt did. When she got the operator, she was told that, quote, we already got the calls, referring to the attack on Kitty. And she barely got anything else out before the operator hung up. Forty years after that original story was published, the New York Times went back and printed an examination, challenging the accuracy of Martin Gansberg's piece. Most of their information now came from Joe DeMay, a Q resident and amateur historian. He thought this whole thing didn't make sense. He came to the conclusion that those 38 witnesses were actually ear witnesses and not eyewitnesses. He theorized a timeline of what happened. 
After the initial attack on Austin Street, the killer fled. Kitty had made her way around to the back of the building, so when Mosley returned, the eyewitnesses couldn't see her and assumed that she was safe. It makes sense. Bill even talked to esteemed journalist Mike Wallace, who ran a story on 60 Minutes about the crime. When asked why no one ever followed up on this supposed 38 witnesses, Wallace explained it was because of all the journalists at the time just went on the word of the New York Times. They had clout, and quite frankly, that story sold. When TV reporter Danny Meenan challenged Martin Gansberg about the omission of vital facts, he just told him it would have ruined the story. You have to remember back then, stories were taken as complete fact. All of this led Kitty's brother Bill down a rabbit hole to obtain the truth. But the other members of the Genovese family wanted none of it. It was still too painful for them. Bill even tracked down a couple of customers from Ev's 11th hour that knew his sister pretty well. They recalled her as being a total pussycat. They admitted that they knew she was gay, a fact that bothered no one because that she was one of the boys. She was very well loved at the bar. But unfamiliar to them was her previous rest, the source of her now famous mugshot. Kitty had been arrested after running bets to give to bookies, Marianne was even sought out by Bill, of course, because she knew his sister better than anyone. She didn't want to speak to him on camera, but she was willing to be recorded. And she recalled Kitty having very many conflicts about being gay, a fact that was made obvious by her previous very short-lived marriage to a guy named Rocco. Marianne admitted that she still wasn't over the death. She slept with Kitty's shirt for a very long time. Bill also tried to contact his sister's killer, Winston Mosley. Mosley toyed with the idea, but eventually refused to speak with him. Instead, he sent his adult son, Stephen, now a reverend, to talk to Bill. The son was seven at the time of the murder. He said his father spoke of the murder, just saying he snapped out and killed a woman. But Stephen didn't have any knowledge of his father's other crimes and he talked as though it was so long ago that it should just be forgotten. He declared that his father was reformed. In fact, Winston Mosley was, quote, tired of being exploited. A kind of amusing part was when Stephen admitted being reluctant about meeting with Bill because he thought they were part of the Genovese crime family. Bill assured him that they were not at all connected. Winston Mosley eventually wrote to Bill in an email, but this time his story was drastically different. He said he was simply a getaway driver and not the killer. He worked for a mobster named Dominic, who actually killed Kitty. This mobster supposedly claimed that she owed him, and if Mosley talked, he'd be sorry. This was an obvious embellishment. But Mosley wasn't reformed in any way. In fact, in 1968, he made an escape from prison, he had shoved a tin can so far up his rectum that it required surgery. After the surgery, two officers were sent to take him back to Attica, and only one of them was armed. When he was in the dressing room to change from his hospital clothes to his inmate uniform, he lunged at one of the officers, knocking him down. And by the time the officer got up, Mosley was long gone. 
he broke into an unoccupied home very close to the hospital. And there he called the New York State Employment Service requesting a maid, which was something you could do at the time. They dispatched Zella Moore, who came to the home. She was met at the door by Mosley and a gun he had found at the home. And over the next five hours, she was raped before he let her go. She was afraid of the police, but she did try to let Janet Kalaga, the owner's daughter, know that something weird was going on at the home. And without exactly knowing what was going on, Janet and her husband Matthew drove to the home to check it out. Mosley bound and robbed the couple when they entered the home, and he tried to rape Janet before he left. After that, he entered the garden apartment of Mary Kay Patmost, taking her and her five-month-old daughter and a woman named Gladys Costanza hostage. He let Gladys leave after promising to bring him a car. Instead of doing that, she called the FBI. After hours of hostage negotiation, Mosley surrendered. Mosley eventually died in prison on March 28, 2016, at the age of 81. So what actually happened that night? Now I'm going to give you the factual account of what happened. That night, Winston Mosley was out looking for a victim. He saw Kitty get out of her car after a late night at work at Ev's 11th hour. He followed her and his white Corvair to where she was parked in the lot at the Long Island Railroad lot. Kitty got out of her car, and she walked the deserted block of Austin Street to head to her apartment. When she got to the pharmacy, she heard footsteps. Unfortunately for her, no one else was on the street except for her assailant. She started to run, but Mosley caught up to her. He stabbed her in the back with a hunting knife. She screamed. He stabbed her again, this time puncturing one of her lungs. She screamed again, yelling, Oh God, I've been stabbed! Lights came on. It was about 3.20 a.m. People heard, Oh God, he stabbed me. Help me. On the seventh floor of the Mowbray, Robert Moser opened his window and yelled out, Leave that girl alone. Mosley looked up at him. Kitty was on her knees. Stewardess Andre Peake heard him shout, and she went to her window. Also at their windows were Sam and Marjorie Koshkin, Irene Frost, Mike Hoffman and Madeline Hartman, but none of them saw anything. They were the ear witnesses. At this point, only Joseph Fink had a clear view, but he took the elevator to the basement and went to sleep. The Farrar family heard their shrieks, but when they went to the window, they saw nothing. Mosley was afraid that someone would see his Corvair parked on the street, so he went to move it, and that's when Irene Frost saw him running. Kitty was now in front of the bookstore but couldn't be seen. Kitty silently made it to her feet and proceeded to unsteadily make her way along the storefronts. This might have accounted for some of the eyewitnesses thinking they only saw a drunk woman. She made her way to the back of the building, most likely heading towards home. But she was out of sight of anyone. So if they looked out the window after hearing her cries, they didn't see anything. Many thought about calling the police, and Mike Hoffman's father did. He overheard his father saying to the dispatcher, a lady got beat up. Kitty staggered closer to her apartment, but she collapsed in the vestibule of 8262 at the foot of the stairs. Mosley waited a few minutes, and after he realized no one was coming to help, he hunted Kitty down. He found her in the stairwell, stabbing her again. 
and this was when she sustained all those defensive wounds to her hands. They cut right through her gloves. Kitty screamed again. This time, because she was right outside of Carl Ross's apartment, he peeked out the door. He saw Mosley on top of Kitty. Scared and drunk, he just slammed the door shut. This was around 3.40 or 3.45, and after stabbing her many more times, Mosley sexually assaulted her. Carl Ross phoned his friend who advised him to not get involved. She urged him to come over to her place so he crawled out his window rather than confront the killer in his hallway. After Mosley finished raping Kitty, he took $49 from her billfold. Greta Schwartz phoned the Farrar apartment asking what they should do. She said Kitty was being attacked. Sophie yelled, call the police. She grabbed her coat and she ran out the door. It's important to note that this woman was only 4 feet 11 inches, running straight into who knows what. She didn't wait for her husband to even get dressed. She ran out that door. Sophie found her friend lying in a pool of blood. She fought her, thinking Sophie was her assailant. Kitty, it's Sophie, it's okay. When Sophie looked up, she saw Carl Ross and yelled for him to give her a towel. He'd come back to his apartment after finally calling police. Sophie tried to make Kitty as comfortable as possible. The help finally came at 3.52, but it was too late. Kitty was gone. So Kitty Genovese didn't die alone like her family believed all those years. There weren't 38 witnesses who ignored her cries. There were only a few actual eyewitnesses, and they only saw snippets of what was going on. Most of these supposed 38 heard cries, but they didn't see anything. That original story was full of false information. And because of it, for years, people were portrayed as the citizens of Kew Gardens as uncaring and different, when in fact they weren't. Calls were made to police. People did try to help. Now granted, some of the ones with the actual views of the attack didn't, like Joseph Fink, who went to bed for whatever reason. And if Carl Ross hadn't been so afraid, he might have been able to intervene. The one who wasn't afraid was Sophie Farrar, all four foot eleven inches of her, but she was just too late to help. Kitty's brother Bill said he felt how a sister must have felt that night one time in his life. During the Vietnam War, he enlisted in the Marines. In July of 1967, while on patrol in an enemy village, a bomb hit. While lying there critically injured in a paddy, he felt very alone. So he thought of his sister that night and thought, this must have been how Kitty felt. And this was well before he knew that she actually died in the arms of her friend Sophie. Bell lost both his legs that night. Researching his sister's death became an obsession, but in the very end, finding out what actually happened provided some closure to him and the Genovese family. Before, they could never even mention Kitty's name. Bill forced them to be involved in the process with his research. And finally, they were able to sit and reminisce about the happier times with Kitty. The younger generations finally learned about their aunt, who was never mentioned before. I think the most moving part of the documentary was when Bill got actress Shannon Beebe to literally walk in his sister's footsteps. Together, they arranged a night, and they let neighbors know that there would be some noise. Then, Shannon retraced Kitty's steps that fateful night. 
She screamed what Kitty screamed. Bill needed to know and to hear what actually happened to his sister. When it was all over, Shannon and Bill hugged each other and cried. Kitty could finally rest. That was the story of Kitty Genovese. I've always been very affected by it, and it was even more so after researching it. I, like Bill Genovese, had no idea of the actual facts. Like many people, I believe that 38 witnesses didn't help. I mean, this had been portrayed in the media for years. From everything to being mentioned on television shows, to an article in Psychology Today, to being taught as a course in social sciences in college. Most recently, Kitty's story was a part of the HBO television show Girls. In one episode, the main character's ex-boyfriend, Adam, was in a kind of live-action reenactment of the neighbors who supposedly ignored Kitty's cries. Ironically, the night it aired was the same night that Winston Mosley died. I guess if we can gain anything from this, it's to not believe everything you read. We're already in this era of a lot of fake news going on out there. It's just very surprising that, that it happened then, when you could supposedly trust the news. I'm glad the truth is out there now. People did try to help that night. It just didn't make for an interesting story. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Last week, a podcast I really love called The Minds of Madness ran one of my promos. It's one of the best true crime podcasts out there done by Tyler and Beck Allen. So I wanted to thank them for that. They're incredibly generous people who really care about what they're doing. They're working on trying to get funds together for the Jennifer Long Memorial. She was a girl who was murdered after leaving school one day. And her family would like to have a bench put up in her memory, but the cost is around $5,000. So Beck and Tyler have put together an auction to raise money, as well as a PayPal account for donations. And I think so far they've raised $3,000. So please go check it out. I've posted some of the links on my Facebook page. So if you can, go bid or donate. It's a really great cause. And I want to really thank my friend Siobhan for her gracious donation. You are so awesome. So to find that link or to just go and check out my page, look up Red Rum Blonde on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter at Blonde Red Rum and Instagram. And if you'd like some merch, go to tpublic.com. I want to thank Laura Riley for your very nice review and everyone else who's left one. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for listening and catch you all next week.